This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by the Breathe Life Bible. The Breathe Life Bible invites readers to put their faith in action as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, to address issues of justice with biblical truth, and to be gospel-driven changemakers in pursuit of God's vision of a community where all people are valued and cared for. Learn more at breathelifebible.com. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I've had several people ask me in recent days about whether complementarianism can survive the moment that the culture and the church uh, is going through right now as it relates to uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault, and and so forth. Uh, And before I even answer that question, let me define, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, what complementarianism is. In its most basic form, complementarianism is uh, is the idea that God has uh, created men and women equal, that there's inherent equality and, and equal dignity between men and women, and that God has gifted both men and women for service in, in the church and, and in the world, but that there are some aspects of those callings that are distinct. And so Ephesians chapter 5 uh, would talk about headship, of the man, of the husband in marriage, and you would have uh, certain qualifications such as pastor uh, in First uh, Timothy two reserved for for men. Uh, you would have certain uh, teaching callings Titus two women to women reserved only for for women. That one on one sense of of discipleship of women reserved for women. Equality, uh, in essence, and, and distinction in some uh, aspects of, of calling. And so the question is, since there has been such uh, a revelation in uh, recent years about uh, awful things taking place, especially to women uh, within the secular world and within the church, can, can complementarianism survive that? And I suppose the, the answer to that would depend upon first— rightly identifying what's going on in the cultural ecosystem around us and rightly identifying what complementarianism is or or ought to be. And when it comes to the first question, one of the things that I find is that sometimes when something awful has been revealed, our natural tendency is to say, well, where can we find an ideology or a tribe or, or, or something that will protect us from all of, of those bad things. So sometimes you will have that taking place in reverse with some people who will say, well, egalitarianism, because so many people who have uh, argued that men and women have identical callings and, and in every way uh, within the church and the home, because so many of them have come to uh, abandon a Christian sexual ethic, then that means that we, we can find a, a safe haven in complementarianism. And now when you have people who are saying, well, because some uh, prominent uh, complementarians have been shown to be uh, 
bad on issues of sexual assault and abuse, then that means that we can find a safe harbor uh, somewhere else in, in some other uh, system. One of the things I think that God is doing right now is revealing to us that there there is no ideological safe harbor. It seems that the apocalypse, the revealing of things that were already present but hidden uh, that's taking place has happened across the board in such a way that it's impossible to say, well, you are the ones who are to blame and over here are the people where that's not happening. So in the secular world, we have the Harvey Weinstein and, and Bill Cosby uh, sorts of, of situations that really are, are multiplied exponentially downward uh, throughout the culture as you get to the, the local level. Uh, with uh, egalitarianism, you have uh, the Willow Creek Church situation and others, where you have churches that at the idea level were committed to uh, sameness of opportunity in every way and with distinctions being made not on the basis of gender at all but only on the basis of gifting where same sort of uh, misogynistic culture has been shown to exist in various ways. And you have – I think if that's all that you had going on, then I think you would have many complementarians who would say, well, see, complementarianism will prevent that from happening because there's a sense of men's responsibility to to care for women. And so complementarianism is the alternative to that sort of mistreatment of, of women and other vulnerable people. Can't say that. Though, when you look around and you see what has has happened in many places that were complementarian and awful things being revealed there. So since that's the case, what then does that mean for complementarianism? Can complementarianism uh, survive this? You know, early on in my ministry, I did not think that complementarianism would survive. I thought that complementarianism was biblically correct, but that the cultural pressures were so great and the sort of market-driven realities of evangelicalism being what they were would uh, end up with egalitarianism winning the day. That didn't happen. I was wrong about – I've been wrong about – I've changed my mind about several things uh, over the years, and someday maybe I'll do a – I broadcast on on the various ways I've changed my mind. This is one of them. I think that that did not happen largely because of the sexuality and gender identity uh, controversies that emerged so that many people were able to see, wait a minute, this is the trajectory that this sort of, of treatment of these passages can lead to. We know that the Bible is teaching the goodness of being created male and female. We know that there are some distinctions in uh, maleness and femaleness in terms of calling because we see it in terms of, of marriage and, and sexual union. So that, that didn't happen. I think that in a similar way, what we're seeing right now is a, a kind of sifting between a hyper-complementarianism and a biblical complementarianism. And, and what I mean by hyper is this, a sense of emphasizing the distinctions between men and women in such a way that one would magnify those distinctions beyond the commonness and the sameness that we have. And I think that's, again, sort of a 
natural human reaction to controversy where sometimes we we take the the arguments that we're making, we take the passages that we have, and we almost unintentionally or subconsciously assume that the other passages that are being marshaled are the other side's passages. So, for instance, uh, I remember uh, one time being in a church, I was, I was seated next to someone who was, like I am, a Calvinist. And the pastor stood up and prayed and said, and Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. And this person said, what was with Pastor So-and-So's Arminian prayer? And uh, I said, well, that wasn't an Ar- Arminian prayer. That was quoting directly from 1 John 2.2. 2. Uh, if 1 John 2.2 2 is an Arminian verse, then the Holy Spirit's an Arminian and we should be as well. Uh, well, again, that was just that natural tendency of because Arminians were constantly quoting 1 John 2.2, 2, that that was their terrain in his mind, and his terrain was in John 6 or in John 17 or, or other places. I think the same thing can happen here, where because Galatians 3.28 is often used to say, well, because there's no male or female, uh, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, then that means that there is a complete eradication of created differences in maleness and femaleness, but there's a sense of in which what we want to do is in saying what Galatians 3.28 does not say to completely evacuate Galatians 3.28 of what it does say, which is to say Genesis 1 and 2, God is creating humanity, male and female, and God is giving to humanity, male and female, a mandate and a calling to subdue the creation, to image God in serving the rest of the creation and, and governing it, conserving and, and cultivating uh, the creation. That belongs to both men and women. Galatians 3.28 is talking about our inheritance. And inheritance, again, that's not just, it's not just stuff. Uh, it's not like a, a check. It's an inheritance of responsibility. Uh, I will give to you a kingdom, and that that kingdom carries with it genuine ruling, governing responsibilities that God has given to both men and women, because both men and women are in Christ, and Jesus has been given uh, these things. That is what the New Testament teaches. New Testament also teaches that there are some distinctions and differences that God has made. I think that sometimes what's happened is that complementarianism, and I count myself in this as a complementarian, some of the things that we have done is to, first of all, emphasize a corporate analogy. Uh, and by corporate, I mean uh, not a, a bodily analogy, which is, which is accurate biblically, but a, an economic business uh, analogy, CEO sort of uh, analogy, uh, rather than the analogies that the Bible gives to us, which are of the body and of the family. And so in that sense, having complementarianism means first and foremost complementarity, which means we need each other. And we need each other to carry out the same common task. That's necessary uh, for us to understand. And that's why sometimes I think that that complementarians and others 
are unable to get what the Apostle Paul is teaching when it comes to marriage, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and other places. Because we think of head body as CEO staff or employer employees, when, when that's not the analogy that's being used at all, it isn't a question of who has all of the agenda and then who is dictating that agenda to someone else. It's instead a, a seamless sort of movement together that is analogous to Christ and the church. So that there's an organic unity between uh, husband and wife. And that organic unity ought not to be this constant struggle about who's in charge. But instead, it means that there is a unique and special calling for men, for husbands, to lead, but to lead in what direction? Not to lead toward their own interests, but to lead away from their own interests toward the the interests of uh, their wives and of uh, their children and of their uh, larger families. So the specific sort of calling is a calling of a leadership toward sacrifice. Now, again, think about that in terms of the way that the Bible uh, talks about giftings within the church. A gifting within the church toward evangelism doesn't mean that the rest of the body is not called to evangelize. It means that the one with the gift of evangelism has a special emphasis on that in order to teach and equip the rest of the body how to evangelize. You can't say, I'm not sharing the gospel with my neighbor because I have the gift of hospitality. No, it means I'm being equipped by the one who has the gift of evangelism to do that. A husband is not saying, well, I'm the only one that leads or I'm the only one who sacrifices. He's saying, I'm the one with that special calling, distinct calling to orient myself toward leading by pouring myself out for uh, my wife, Ephesians chapter 5. If we miss that analogy, then we're going to end up in a bad place. Same thing is true in terms of the, the church. Again, the analogy is not a corporation structure. The analogy is a family. So you have a calling within what Paul calls in 1 Timothy 3, the household of God, to some who are fathering and some who are mothering. So again, it's not a question of who is in charge and who is not in charge. The church belongs to all of the people of God as the priests to one another. The question is, are there unique ways that we come into that as men and women? where there's a difference in how one fathers the church and a difference in how one mothers the church and that those two things need one another. That's what I think is the question. And so to say that that men are called to be pastors is not to say that men are somehow in charge. It's to say that men have been called to this unique calling of fathering uh, the congregation and women are called to this unique calling of mothering uh, the congregation. Those have, again, a lot of similarities in parenting, but they also have some distinctions uh, that are present there. And if we get rid of those distinctions, we're going to end up in a place that's going to take us uh, far away from where the Bible has, has put us. Also, though, I think that sometimes you've had a complementarianism 
that like any other idea or any other movement, uh, for lack of a better word, has become more intent on defining ourselves over and against the other and more intent on remaining sort of within the tribe that we have sometimes done exactly what the religious leaders in Jesus' time were doing to the law, taking the law and building all sorts of hedges around it so that they could be at ease with knowing that there was no way that they're going to violate it because they're not going to come anywhere close to it. So sometimes I think that in doing this work of coming through and saying, okay, here are the ways that God has distinctly gifted men and the way that God has distinctly uh, gifted women laid out in Scripture. Sometimes I think what we have done is to exaggerate those differences to such an extent that we've wanted to stay safely away from anything that could even be called egalitarianism, which means you don't have to worry about women taking on unbiblical responsibilities if they're taking on virtually no responsibilities. And that is not in the reality. I doubt there's a church anywhere, certainly not that I've ever seen, where you don't have women's leadership. And actually, in most places, more vitality uh, among women in service to the church than men. But in terms of the public witness of the church, sometimes that can easily be seen. So, you know, there are going to be some issues where complementarians have unanimity. Only qualified men should serve as as pastors, for instance. There are going to be other issues where complementarians are going to have some some disagreement. Does 1 Timothy 3 mean that only men can be deacons? That's that's a conversation complementarians can have with with one another. Uh, What do we do with some of these parachurch sort of teaching structures? within the, the, the life of the church. Sometimes complementarians are going to have different views about what those things ought to look like. But sometimes what we see in the public witness of the church are things where even uh, the leaders of that congregation would know that there's not a biblical mandate against uh, certain things, but they're just not happening because you don't want to, as one person said to me, send a, a signal. So there's no women leading the congregation in the reading of Scripture. Uh, There's no women leading the congregation in taking up the offering or giving announcements or doing all sorts of things that are not forbidden by Scripture, and it's not because the congregation has come to some conviction about those things, but because uh, the congregation simply doesn't want to do the work of saying, yes, we think that maleness and femaleness come uh, come with some distinctions, but we also think that complementarianism means complementarity, that we need both men and women, and here are areas where both men and women can serve in public visible ministries. Uh, that do not in any way sacrifice what the Scripture has taught about maleness and femaleness. That, that, that's simply a reality and one that needs to be done away with. It also is a situation where if egalitarians and complementarians are both going to deal with this awful reality that we're seeing taking place in too many churches of women being abused, harassed, assaulted, mistreated, shamed, then egalitarians are going to have to bring to the table the best of egalitarianism, which is the emphasis that men and women are both equally valuable to God and both 
called to the service of, of Jesus in order to say, this is an assault on the image of God. And biblical complementarians ought to agree with that. And complementarians need to bring the best of our ideas to the table as well and to say, okay, and we think also that men have been given a distinct and special responsibility, not a distinct and special place of power, but a distinct responsibility. And what is that responsibility about? That responsibility is not defined by the way of Caesar, who who is in the position of preeminence, but in the way of the cross. Who has the responsibility to make sure that he is sacrificing his own interests to protect others and to to see to it that things are safe? So a genuinely complementarian church ought to be the church where the men are constantly asking, how should we give away our authority and power in every way that is biblically allowed in order to empower others? And how are we to set aside our own interests in every way that is biblically allowable in order to further the interests of others? And how are we to see to it that we teach and communicate to the men in our congregations that you have a unique biblical responsibility. You have a responsibility as a Christian to see to it that the vulnerable are cared for and that justice is done. You also have, on top of that, a unique calling as a father within the church to see to it that the vulnerable are protected. When that starts to happen, uh, what you're going to see is that you're still going to have uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of, of conversations that are going to need to be worked through about what does this look like? How do we carry out fully the vision of Galatians three twenty eight and twenty nine, and carry out fully the vision of First Timothy two and Ephesians five? That's going to, in some places take some working through, just as everything does. And it, it also means that, yes, there are going to be times when we're going to say, if you carry through the logical understanding of your uh, viewpoint, you can end up in, in some, some bad places. So I'm, I may say to an egalitarian, if you, if you interpret the rest of Scripture the way that you're interpreting these passages on maleness and femaleness, then you are going to end up in affirming homosexuality and and transgender uh, ideology. Okay, that may be true, but I also know that there are many egalitarians who aren't carrying it through to that direction. Now, I may say it's because they're not consistently pressing that. Okay, they may say, well, complementarianism, if you press it uh, all the way through to its logical conclusion, then you're going to end up with uh, some sort of uh, male domination, and many have. Because there are some for whom the issue is not how do we submit ourselves to Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2. For many, for some, the issue is how do I maintain my power and 1 Timothy 2 and, and, uh, and Ephesians 5 enable me to do that. Yes, that may be an egalitarian would say where this logically leads, but they also know there are many complementarians, the majority probably of, of Christians in the history of the church, who don't carry that through 
to that level. And so what does, what, what does that then mean? I mean, even an egalitarian who accepts the authority of Scripture would have to say, uh, well, the Apostle Paul clearly was a complementarian of some kind. They may say, well, it was only for a limited time and for a limited cultural setting, but he was a complementarian. You can't say he was a misogynist. We clearly know that. So how do we then follow and live that out? That's going to be the question, which means that in churches of every sort, and especially for those that are complementarian churches, there should be not one hint of toleration for the abuse, mistreatment, trivialization of women, ever, ever. And complementarian churches that prize complementarity need to be the churches who are asking above all other churches, how do we equip and empower the women within our congregation to build up the rest of the body of Christ and to use all of the gifts that God has given to them? Not just for their own sake, but for ours, for the sake of the church. This is Russell Moore. You've been listening to Signposts.